0: In this episode of Stars for the Rest of Us, Rob and I are going to be talking about whether you should take on a co-founder or not. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 408. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you've bought your first product, or you're just thinking about it. I'm Mike. And I'm Rob. We're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. What's going on this week, Rob?
1: MicroConf Europe tickets are now available to the public. Head to microconfeurope.com and click on the Give Me a Ticket Now link, or we'll link directly to our Eventbrite page in the show notes. You pretty stoked? It's Croatia, man. It's just a couple months away.
0: Yeah, I know. That's uh, The date is coming up quickly. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it's definitely something to look forward to, though. The uh, place where we're having it is right on the ocean. So it should be a, a gorgeous view, if nothing else. And I don't know if I mentioned this before, but parts of Game of Thrones were filmed there and over in uh, Old Town in Dubrovnik. So I saw this article that showed a mashup of what the place actually looks like versus what the Game of Thrones scenes that's associated with it was. And some of it just is breathtaking. I mean, it's just fantastic architecture and, you know, the scenery and everything else that goes with it. So it'll be pretty cool.
1: That's super cool. Yeah. I had heard that. I didn't realize they did it in Dubrovnik. So assuming we're pronouncing that correctly, although we may not be, but um, yeah, I'm excited both to get there for Microconf Europe because I always enjoy you know the conference and seeing old friends and hearing the speakers, but also excited to take a couple of weeks and see Croatia because we've never been. So I'm going to be bringing the family, or I should say, we're Sherry and I are going to be bringing the family. Sherry and I are both speaking at Microconf Europe this year, and we'll probably take a couple of weeks before MicroConf Europe and head all the way down the coast, there's a really, there's some cool itineraries. If you buy guidebooks where they have like a two week driving itinerary, there's also some online and you just, you fly into the capital and then you kind of drive down to different cities. And the thing is, when we first talked about it, we were like, yeah, we can probably take the kids out for two weeks because they, you know, there's school and all that kind of stuff. But you know, Sherry's like, I'm not sure there's going to be enough to do in Croatia. Maybe we should head over to Greece. And then as soon as we started researching it, it was like, no, there's, there's a lot to do and a lot to see. It reminds me a little bit of California in terms of the, it's not identical, obviously, but there's, there's that, at least on the order of magnitude of that much rich kind of cultural things, natural beauty, beaches, mountains, all that stuff. So pretty, pretty stoked to, uh, to do it there this year.
0: Very cool. So on my end, I have a, a blue tick revenue milestone that I just recently reached. I recently crossed uh thirty thousand dollars in total revenue for
1: it. Good for you, man.
0: So I'm pretty pretty happy about that. But obviously, like I I, I definitely have a ways to go in terms of like MRR. But uh, things are trending upwards in the correct direction. So I'm pretty stoked about that, and it's just a matter of getting the things done, I guess.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it always is, man. Yeah. That long, slow, ramp of death is always just that long and slow. <laughs> hopefully it's not actually death though.
0: Yes. Hopefully not.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I was, uh, I was actually listening to current geek, which is a, a Tom Merritt podcast. And he was mentioning, he was talking about eBay and that he hadn't sold something on eBay in like 15 years and that he was moving. And so he's, you know, get, getting rid of some old stuff. And he started talking through the process uh, of selling and how different it was. And I realized that, like, I've just always done a lot of buying and selling online. I mean, even before eBay and Amazon, I was in what was, it, it was called Usenet. Yeah. The Usenet groups in the 90s.
0: Oh, you're old. Yeah. You're no, old. <laughs> I am one of those guys.
1: And I used to um, buy and sell all kinds of stuff like comic books. I used to do guitar pedals, I played electric guitar a lot back then, and it was mostly for profit. I was trying to cover at least my living expenses, not my rent or my tuition, but just uh, other miscellaneous expenses. anyways, so with that said, like eBay was just uh, such a bear to sell on in the late nineties and early two thousands. And it was like, you had to take your photographs and then you had to get them scanned and make them digital, you know, it was such a mess. But man, with it, with the eBay app now, you just take the pictures right in the app. And then if you're selling anything that's, that's like moderately uh, standardized, like if you're selling a model of a printer, right. Or a model of a laptop or a set of headphones, like they have all that data now. I don't know why it took them so long to do it, but it's definitely more, similar to to kind of it's not exactly the same but it's more similar to selling on Amazon because I switched over to Amazon for almost all of my selling and I don't do that much these days, but I do, we'll play some games and then we'll get tired of them or we'll have some books that are worth something and I'll just, I'll post them up because it takes 30 seconds to post and then you can print the shipping labels both right directly from eBay and Amazon now and I have my kids tape them on and then they take, typically it's some of their stuff that we're selling, to be honest. I don't have much physical stuff left, like physical books and stuff, but my kids will uh, take a portion of the of the profit, you know, or the portion of the thing. So it's, I'm kind of trying to show them how to do it and, and motivate them as well. But I just wanted to comment that I typically have have veered towards Amazon because it's such an easy process to to post. And eBay does still take longer. But there are items sometimes that Amazon won't let you resell, like the manufacturer has said. There's a cer- certain types of games that kind of don't have replayability. They're the the escape room games, and Amazon just won't let you sell them. And so I've been I've sold those on eBay. And then there's some other like mighty wallets and stuff that I had that that were in good shape that I was trying to sell. So really just a public service announcement that, you know, if you go to sell something and Amazon won't let you do it, head over to eBay. It's not as catastrophic as it once was.
0: (laughs) Well, that's uh, definitely some good advice. I've tried to avoid eBay to some extent just because like I don't, I don't tend to just sell a bunch of my stuff. I guess I, I think we just kind of collect it to be honest or just throw it away. But yeah, like I, I remember checking my eBay account, uh, it was a couple of years ago and like most of my ratings and stuff had completely gone away. Cause I hadn't used my account in so long. i was <laughs> just like, Oh, all right.
1: They only, yeah, I don't, I don't know if they do, they, they show lifetime ratings, but then they'll like that. Yeah. If you haven't had ratings in eight, six months or a year, then it kind of like degrades, which I think is a good policy, you know, because some people like will sell their account to like, basically people will buy an account with some ratings to like swindle people, you know, so they really have to, really have to be guarded about that. Oh, yeah. I hadn't thought
0: about that. Yeah. yeah. Darn those people.
1: <laughs> so what else was going on with you?
0: Well, the only other thing I have is uh, I spent far longer than I wanted to trying to rebuild my uh, deployment process for Bluetick. So I talked about how I was in the process of deploying a public API and put that out there. And unfortunately, as part of that, it creates another URL that needs to be like I need to have software deployed to. And things just got more complicated and I've got multiple machines involved. So it's no longer as easy as just like, oh, just click this button here and then copy a folder from this machine to this machine and then, you know, run an next executable or whatever so now that it's much more complicated because i have four different websites that basically need to be deployed as part of the build process so it's like all right i need to re-engineer this whole thing so it took me like probably a week and a half to two weeks to just rebuild that using different software but it's all working now so it's it's really nice i can just click the button and it just goes out and deploys everything on multiple machines and it deploys new copies of it so it's no longer deploying over itself which is just fantastic, because now if anything goes wrong, I can revert. Whereas before, I didn't really have that capability. Like I had to do a bunch of manual stuff in order to make sure that in certain cases, I had the ability to revert. So obviously, like there's some changes you'll make that are like, oh, I'm changing some HTML here, or an API call there, and it's not a big deal. But then there's other ones where you know that it's kind of a much more of a risky change, and you want to have backups of stuff before you go deploy it, just because the build process can take a while if you need to revert in any way. Yeah,
1: that's, Brutal to spend that much time on something like this at at this juncture, but I get it that these are the things that at some point you kind of have to deal with and you can't just keep kicking them down the line. Well, you can, but then you get this like crazy legacy stuff that really can, you know, hold you back down the line.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've, I've kicked this down the line for a year at this point. Like I went back and looked at when I started trying to do what I just finished and it was a year ago. So I was like, oh, I need to upgrade the software and put the latest version on and all this other stuff. And I look I remember seeing the dates and it was about a year ago. And that was when I, it was complicated enough that I'm like, nope, not going to do this now. And I pushed it off for long enough that it's like, eh, I kind of have to do it now.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it stinks to lose that much time, right? When you're trying to <laughs> trying to move fast on a, on a startup. And this is why at a certain point, it's like either, you know, having money, whether from revenue or from, you know, again, a small amount of funding, like we talked about a couple episodes ago, to just hire someone who can come in and help with that or to hire someone to build features while you're doing that. You know, it allows so much more parallelism. You can move a lot faster.
0: Mm-hmm and that's a nice lead into today's topic which is should you take on a co-founder because obviously if you have a co-founder then you don't necessarily need funding i mean you could you could certainly go down that road as well if you'd like but I think the problem most people are trying to solve by bringing on a co-founder is avoiding going down that road altogether or just adding somebody in in a way that feels much more cost-effective and helps to have somebody else who's got some skin in the game and they're going to help the business uh, with a a completely different skill set than you have and help drive the whole thing forward.
1: Yep, for sure. And this is, I mean, it's a topic I know we've discussed a little bit in the past, but I don't think we've dedicated a whole episode to it. And it's something that a lot of people a lot of people are faced with, you know, is like, should you do this? Or should you just, should you go it alone? So I think it'll be a good conversation today.
0: So then the opening question is like, should you actually go down the road of having a partnership or should you hire somebody? And I think for most self-funded businesses, the big issue with hiring somebody is you simply don't have the money. You either don't have the revenue or, you know, you would have to cut significantly into your own equity percentage or not equity percentage, but the amount of money that you're basically putting in your own pocket in order to be able to hire somebody. And you may just not have, enough coming in to be able to do that also if you're very early on or you're just working from the point of having an idea there's nothing there so in many ways it kind of makes sense to go the partnership route versus hiring somebody because if you're going to try and hire let's say a developer or something like that you're probably going to blow at least 30 dollars trying to get something to the point where you can just show it to customers and get it out the door now Whether you validated that idea in advance, obviously you should have, especially if you're going to dump that kind of money into it, because you want to be absolutely sure that this large quantity of money that you're dumping in there for that work to be done is going to eventually pay off.
1: Yeah, Jason Calacanis on This Week in Startups has a a saying. He says, hire your co founders, or at least that's what he does. And he has the luxury that he has the funding to do that, right? So he can. Basically, keep the lion's share of the equity um, because you know long term he thinks that's gonna gonna be worth a lot of money, and he can hire someone at a totally reasonable salary because he can either do it out of pocket or he can raise a round of funding and pay them probably market rate or something close to that, and you know maybe they get five percent uh, of the company, so they, they get some they have skin in the game and they'll get the upside too. But he doesn't have to give up, you know, 50% of the company or whatever as, as maybe if you were starting from scratch that you would have to do. And so the hiring is a luxury that you will have if you have, you know, either raised some kind of funding on your own or have the power to do that you know, because of whatever, because of your background or your your network, or you have the money that you're able to self-fund from, you know, from other ventures. But if you don't, then yeah, it becomes not possible, right? If if you don't even have enough money to quit your own job, how are you going to have enough money to um, pay someone else's salary?
0: The other thing to take into consideration is the skill sets. Like do you have the skill set that ranges both the marketing and sales side of things or can you only do development? If you're a non-technical founder, then you kind of need somebody to step in and perform those duties as a developer from the eyes of a business owner. I've I've talked to a few different people who have are, are non-technical founders and they're like, "Oh, okay, I want to bring somebody in to help out with the development side, but uh, I find that a lot of contractors are very hesitant to kind of take the range and say okay I'll be the architect for this or the people just don't have the money to hire somebody who's a skilled enough person to be able to have that high-level view who's done it before and it's just it's more of a chicken and the egg problem I think but even with the skill set like you have to figure out what is going to be complementary to you and what is the best type of person to bring in
1: yeah and what's interesting I mean you know you're, you're talking about having a technical co-founder I don't believe I have backed a single, company in terms of my personal angel investments that did not have a technical co-founder and I have passed on several that did not and that was my biggest concern is how are you going to get the tech right this is a software company like the software obviously the marketing is important but the software has to work and someone has to own that and if you don't have someone who is either you know has some skin in the game whether, you know, it's a co-founder or whether it's, if someone said, hey, I have employee number one and I'm able to pay him a full-time salary and I've given him 5%, I'd be like, okay, I can live with that. But just saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to go hire an agency or I'm going to hire contractors or something, that wouldn't work for me. Like that's, that's a personal bias or personal belief of mine. It is obviously possible to do, build a software company without a technical co-founder. I'm sure, you know, we, we probably know people who've done it, but very, very difficult, especially SaaS, which is even, you know, as we know, even more complicated than the traditional kind of downloadable software model. So that's you know I don't don't hope that's not too much of a tangent, but it is something that I think folks should think about if you are. This is why I encourage, and this is part of why the stair step approach works for even non technical founders, right? Is that you start super simple, right? And you start with a one time download, like an info product, or it could be a WordPress plugin, because I could see you paying a contractor to build a plugin to solve a problem, making a few grand a month from that, and then you build, build, build. To the point where you either have the network or the, the, you know, the relationships or you have the funding to then, you know, where you can kind of self-fund and actually, you know, bring someone on who really is kind of more of a technical co-founder.
0: So the next question I think to answer is, how do you know if you're a good fit for each other? And, you know, I feel like this is a hard question to answer just because it depends a lot on what your relationship already is with the person. I mean, if you've known them for 15 or 20 years, it's a lot easier to make the determination as to whether or not you would want to work with them. But if you just met them at, you know, some local meetup or something like that, or you met someone at a conference or you've followed them online and you're just starting a new relationship with them and you have known them personally for very long, then it becomes a lot more difficult to make, I'll say, an objective consideration about it. So I think that there's a couple of things I would keep in mind and try out when I'm doing this. first one is have some sort of a, a like before you make a full-blown agreement, have a trial period of some kind to work on a project. And it could either be that project or it could be something else. So you might hire them to, Build something for you, or and that's more of a a contracting basis. I mean, I don't, I don't wouldn't say that I would like hide it from them that you know you're interested in potentially pursuing something later, but probably wouldn't bring that up as like the first thing is hey, I want to think about having you brought on as a partner and I want to hire you for this project in order to figure out whether or not we're going to be a good fit. Because then if it doesn't work out, then you've kind of already set those expectations that hey, this might turn into something.
1: Yeah, and on this topic there's an episode of Zen Founder that is probably 100 150 episodes ago where Sherry interviewed Jordan Gall and Ben Fisher who are the co-founders of CartHook and just about the quote-unquote dating process that that Jordan and Ben went through and they'd spent months kind of figuring out are we a fit for each other are we going to work well together and i believe like jordan flew out and worked for a week or two kind of from ben's co-working space ben went out to new york and did that with jordan you know and they just kind of went back and forth and and it was a definitely a long process a long kind of trial process but they were really kind of feeling each other out and figuring out can we work well together are we a good fit because if we're not let's not do this you know let's not waste either person's time and let's not have kind of the agony because the agony of a co-founder breakup is, is pretty bad you know it's it's pretty rough so i, I think that pre-arranging a, a trial period and you know you had mentioned not mentioning it to someone you know that you're thinking of bringing them on and i think that is definitely one way to do it you know for some reason i don't remember the context of the story but jordan and ben had already there was more context to it to where they were both equally willing to walk away you know it wasn't like one guy bringing the other guy on it was really they were trying to find a fit so i think you can do it both ways
0: yeah, I, I think that whether you bring it up up front or later on is dependent a lot on whether, like, how well you know them to begin with and whether or not you've kind of even broached the topic. So, like, if it's someone you know online or you've seen them and you are considering potentially asking them, then I probably wouldn't bring that up. First thing. But if you already have some sort of a relationship with them and you see them on occasion or you've talked to them before and they know you personally already and you have a sense that it might be something you want to pursue, then yeah, I would probably bring it up up front at that point. There are some red flags I think I would look for. So one is like if you're, if you're trying to communicate with them and they are not very willing to communicate back with you, especially if you hire them for a project, that's obviously a red flag. If there's any sort of a, a social power disparity between you in terms of what you guys would be bringing to the business relationship. So if something like that is, I, I mean more, not like Twitter followers, more along the lines of, oh, this person has, you know, all the contacts in this particular industry and he's going to try and bring them in as customers and the other one basically has none and it's it can be an issue i'm not saying that that's a, a disqualifier or anything but it's something to examine kind of with a, a magnifying glass to say is this going to be a problem and then i think the obvious question is could you see yourself hanging out with this person as a friend because if they're a business partner with you, you're going to have to talk probably quite a bit. And it's going to be a relationship that you're going to have to maintain for years. So if you can't see yourself working with this person or hanging out with them, you know, maybe you just don't like the way that they treat other people or they're racist or something like that. Like there are certain things that you're going to have to say, no, this is a deal breaker and we're just not
1: going to be able to do it. Another thing to think about obviously is, is it's kind of, you know, this is a little bit like hiring someone in that you want to have references, right? You want to do reference checks. So talk to friends or colleagues that run in the same circles that could potentially know this person. Hiring someone that's completely unknown is always—it's certainly—it's—it's it's a possibility that it could work out, but it is less likely if you don't have any overlapping circles and no one you know knows this person. You know, it depends on depends on if you're just starting out or, or have been going, you know, longer, you have to give context to it. But certainly if, if you know anyone who, you know, who knows this person, it'll, it'll be a lot better off if you can talk to them about it, how this person works and that kind of stuff.
0: Or who has done business with them before, like how do they treat their clients and other people that they interact with at a a business level? Because if they are in the habit of screwing over their customers, then is that the type of person that you would want to be in business with? Yep. So the next question is how to begin a partnership. So there's lots of different ways to go about that. Like you put together a vesting schedule. I think that most startups tend to do that with like if they're granting options, for example. But I do think that even in a partnership, a vesting schedule of some kind is probably a good idea. In the early days, you can track hours to say, okay, well, I put in, you know, 20 hours this week. How many did you put in? And just kind of I wouldn't necessarily use that as like a weapon, for example, in the relationship, but use it as a a kind of a barometer Of how much effort are people putting into the business? Because you, what you don't want to do is you don't want to end up in a situation where you're putting in 95% of the effort and the other person is putting in 5% or 100 and 0. Because at that point, the whole thing's just going to fall apart at some point down the road. You can't have a, a long term business relationship if that's going on. Another tip is having regularly scheduled meetings to just discuss what's going on, put together a, a, an outline of what those things are going to entail, and then make sure that you have a set of common goals and expectations expectations. expectations for one another know what your expectations of that other person are and make sure that you communicate them because if you if you don't tell them what you expect of them then they're going to be hard-pressed to just come up with it on their own
1: yeah and i think the thing is you're trying to find common goals right it's like, do you have common goals? I mean, cause that could be a big thing from the start It's like, Hey, I want to start a SaaS company. And one person wants to go raise funding and, and go through YC. And the other person just wants to build a lifestyle business and work as little as possible and pay the bills, you know, and that's a, a overly simplistic way of looking at it. But this is something that these are the hard conversations that will save you so much kind of pain and anguish, down the line. And I think, you know, this is probably a good point to talk about. Like, we're talking about how to kind of vet a co-founder right now. But, you know, the title of the episode is, should you take on a co-founder? And I think we talked a little bit about, I mean, I I went off on the tangent about if I were non-technical, I would look for a technical co-founder. And that's a very common thing. But what if you are a single technical founder? And the question I'm posing here is like, do you think that that you should go look for a co-founder? And what are the pros and cons of that? I know that when folks apply to Y Combinator, that they tend to fund a lot fewer single founders because from their perspective, the quote is like, the journey is hard and you tend to need someone else to lean on. Now, I you know I don't know if that's Paul Graham's pattern matching. I don't know if it's because Paul Graham had, I believe, two or three other co-founders when he launched his startup, launched and grew his startup. So. What are your thoughts on that question specifically? If you're you're gonna build a SaaS and you are a technical person, like what what are the what are the ideas? Obviously, if I say should you, you could say no, because you're a single founder, right? But what, what was the thought process there? Or what should what should someone think about as they're, you know, kind of thinking that thing through?
0: Well, I think the the interesting point to bring up here is actually the Startups for the last of us podcast actually came from kind of a, a blog post that I'd written a long time ago about when Y Combinator was first t- uh, and kind of announcing that they were going to be funding a bunch of companies and uh, like they were going to be offering, I think $6,000 to move for three months to some certain location. And I'm like, that's just not enough, especially for somebody like me. And so like, what about the rest of us? What are startups for the rest of us? And that's kind of where the original idea came from. And plus, obviously, like I had the domain, uh, singlefounder.com, So it kind of fit really well but i do think it's a a really interesting question because one there's no right or wrong answer it's really what is right for you what is it that you are comfortable doing so i have met people who are perfectly comfortable taking all the responsibilities for a business on their own shoulders and then i've also met you know entrepreneurs who are not like they want a co-founder to share the responsibility and they're they're okay sharing everything because they don't want everything all on their shoulders. So it really depends on the type of person that you are. I also believe that depending on the type of business that you're trying to build, you may or may not need help. So that's a, that's a big question as well. Like how complicated is the thing that you're building? Like, are you going to be able to do both the marketing side of things? And are you also going to be able to do all the technical side of things? Like if you're building something that's extremely complicated, like the level of drip or something like that, there's, a ton of stuff that goes in there. And I think it would be extremely difficult to build that as a one man band. There's just so much technical stuff going on and so many things that need to go into it in a short amount of time that you are not going to have the bandwidth to build the stuff and also do the marketing for it, which is why I think that, you know, that's probably one of the contributing factors to why you and Derek worked out so well, because you've got technical architecture level stuff and you can help with the design, but then you went off and did the marketing stuff while he did a lot of the implementation and you kind of served as a barrier so he could get work done. And I'm speculating to some extent here, but you could kind of confirm or deny that.
1: Yeah. And it did you know, drip started off as a smaller idea. It was going to be a lifestyle business. And then, and Derek was a contractor at that time and then became, you know, W2 at some point. And when we kind of made the decision to be more ambitious about it, I was bouncing ideas off Derek. At this point, I was still the full owner of the company. So it was truly my decision whether or not to, to go into this market. But he was like, a, you know, a confidant. And, and he and I just had a lot of co-founder-like discussions is what I realized. And between the two of us, he and I made better decisions than I would make alone. And that that's what wound up happening. It was just a natural thing. And I, I mean, honestly, from the very start, I did not think Derek would be a co-founder. You know, it was not a plan. I mean, he was literally a contractor working half of his time on Hittail. And I said, hey, I want to build another product. Do you have, what do you want to do the other 20 hours of your week? You know, you want to get paid for that. And he was like, sure. And it was fun to build a product from scratch. And his UX chops are good. And it was just kind of a fun little, little thing. And so we unintentionally, he and I kind of traveled down this road that you've outlined here, you know, of how to vet. But we didn't have any of the presuppositions of, oh, man, are we going to make the decision someday to be a co-founder, da 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 You know, it was eventually, eventually Derek was, you know, he had started a couple apps before that, before Drip that hadn't panned out. And he knew that he wanted to kind of own own something. He didn't just want to work for somebody forever. And, and I knew that about him. And so it came a point where he was like, look, I'm going to go do my own thing. And it was like, well, let's talk about how, what we, what I can do at Drip. For you to not do that, you know to make it worth your while to stick around, and that that 's where it went, so it was very natural and by that time, I trusted him, he trusted me, we both knew how we worked i mean it was a great you know it really it was a Cinderella story, so to speak of of just you know making it work but you 're right drip would not have i don 't want to say it wouldn 't have been what it was without both of us it It just would have been different, you know what I mean like drip, especially in the early days, was built a lot on my network. At my very early vision for the product that quickly became our vision. And it was built a lot on, you know, my public speaking and my audience and all that stuff. And that's what got early traction. And even my network later on got us more, got us kind of affiliates and got us people recommending it and people willing to try it and all that stuff. So I, th- I think Drip could have worked without Derek, but it wouldn't have been able to grow as fast. It would have been way more stressful for me. Like Derek took so much of the load of the technical side, as well as just building good software, right? I wasn't dealing with a a revolving door of contractors. I wasn't dealing with that headache, which would have severely hampered the growth of the business, I believe, right? So I think either of us having not been involved, it would have been, you know, it still could have been successful, but it could potentially have been calamity as well. And that's, I think, comes back to that question, should you take on a co-founder? As you said, this is a complicated, group; is very complicated, right? It's very large um, in terms of, of the app. I can't imagine doing that alone. You know, I can't imagine doing that as a, as a single founder. If you're doing a simpler app, I mean, I had Hit Hittail before that, I didn't take on a business partner with it. No, I didn't build it. But it wasn't that many lines of code, you know. And I did grow it essentially from 1000 bucks a month to 30000 bucks a month over the course of a couple of years, really on my own. I and mean, I had a couple contractors helping me out. So for that one, I didn't need a co-founder. And that was definitely a nice little lifestyle business.
0: But I think that there's a, a you know an order of magnitude and complexity difference between those two different products, and that's kind of my po- my whole point is that if there is a, a an order of magnitude difference between what you currently have going on and what you intend for that product to be or whatever it is going to become, then you know having that co-founder is probably a really good way to go, regardless of who is you know which of the two is writing the code or if only one of them has technical experience then that's fine, but like. There needs to be help because you are not going to be able to switch back and forth between both of them very well. And I'm, <laughs> I'm saying this as somebody who's in the middle of that right now. It's like it's really, really hard to switch back and forth between them because Blue Tick is complicated under the covers. It's way more complicated than I thought it would be. And that's just the nature of it.
1: Yep, that's the struggle. Yeah, would you? Do you regret, or do you wish you had a co-founder? Have you thought about looking for one?
0: Oh yeah, I have. I'm, I mean, when I, it was probably a year and a half ago, I actually approached somebody about coming on as a co-founder. So you know, and, and it's not something that I haven't thought of. But at the time, I was like, okay, yeah, I, I know and trust this person, and I'll ask him. And he thought about it, and we discussed it a little bit, and he decided to go in a different direction, which is totally cool. We're still you know great friends and everything, and he's off doing something else, and that's great. But at the same time, I also have it in the back of my mind, like. Hey, it would be kind of nice to have a co-founder or it would be nice to have funding to be able to either attract a a co-founder or to kind of help in areas where I just can't dedicate nearly as much time as I would like to them. So it's I I could either go in either direction and I have honestly weighed them both like pretty heavily over the past six to eight months. It's like I I know that down the road, like I probably can't do both sides of the business the question is, what do I do? Do I go for funding and try to hire people to just do marketing and report to me? Or do I go the co-founder route? And I think that that's a, it's a hard comparison to make because on one hand you're saying, okay, well, if I get funding, maybe I give away some percentage of the company and I don't really want to do that. But at the same time, if you're bringing on a co-founder, what are the logistics of that look like? I've already spent months, actually years at this point, like helping build the product and get it to where it is I've done a lot of the, the, I'll say the hard, heavy lifting to get the product to be functional and do what it needs to do. But how does a new business partner work into that? Like, how do you value the business? How, like, how do you value all the work and effort that I put in the, the money that I paid to like contractors to help me in different ways, the infrastructure that I've put in place? Like, how do you put a price on that? And how do you work out like what the terms of that would be? You, you,
1: you know what? You're right. That's hard to do but that shouldn't be a reason that you don't do it. You know what I mean? Like you'll, you need to figure that out if you really need, if the, if you really need a co-founder and, and there'll be some awkward or hard conversations and you'll both have ideas of, you know, I have an idea that you should get this much equity and the other person will have different and you'll figure out, Hey, am I willing to, are we willing to meet in the middle or are we willing to compromise? Or is this just not a fit? You're right. There's, there's a lot of complexity to that stuff, but it doesn't mean that it's not worth doing you know what I'm saying? As developers, you and I see all the problems with everything, frankly, right? Like Sherry can say, hey, we're going to Croatia in two months. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, the logistics of that are going to be a nightmare. Everything's going to go wrong. It's like we're used to looking at code and trying to figure out how it's going to break. So in life, I try to figure out how are things going to break, you know, so I can think, be ahead of them or whatever. And I, I think that's what you're doing here. I mean, if it's the right decision, you just, you have to figure it out. But if it's not, if it's not the right decision, if you can raise funding and and hire, essentially hire someone to handle that. Or if you can grow revenue fast enough that you can hire someone, you know, or, and I'm not saying you in particular, but just in general, I mean, these are other options instead of having to do a co-founder. But it does sound like, you're right, there's going to be complexity, but I still think that that it's something if you think it's right for the business that you should consider and bring someone in. The, the, the good news is raising funding at a later stage or bring someone in at a later stage means that uh, it shouldn't be a 50-50 proposition, right? Or, or your valuation should be higher because you do have more traction. And if you've proven the model, and if you've proven the the business and you have all this and you have traction, then it, it, becomes, a different, it becomes a different conversation.
0: Yeah, that's true. I mean, like I said, the situation for me personally is like, I've got three different, uh, I guess, paths, so to speak. And it's not to say that Any of them is necessarily exclusive of the others, but There's the uh, finding a co-founder. There's also the funding. And then there's the potential to just like grow the business revenue higher than it is currently to the point where I can hire somebody to bring on, which I'm almost positive that like that would be somebody to help out on the marketing side of things and then figure out things from there. And if I did that, it doesn't necessarily mean that bringing on a co-founder is out of the realm of possibility. Because if I hire somebody to do marketing, I may decide that, hey, this person is working out in this capacity but I would not want to have them as a co-founder. And the question is like, well, who would I bring on as a co-founder? And I I don't have an answer for that to be perfectly honest. It's just a I don't want to say the hard situation, it's just I don't have easy answers.
1: <laughs> it's startups, man. There are never easy answers, you know. That's that's the thing. I do think that though that our discussion today about whether to have it and kind of or I'm sorry, you know, whether to to look for a co-founder, I feel like that that should be helpful to people. This is one of those issues where there's a lot of, it depends, you know, it depends on who you are, your goals, your goals for personally and for the business. And like we said, you know, the complexity of the business and, and all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. And I think that's, uh, at the end of the day, I I really feel like it comes down to the complexity of the I mean, as you said, like you wouldn't probably would not fund a company that doesn't have a technical co-founder if they're trying to be a software business. And I I I would agree with you, but at at the same time, I'd also say like the decision to take on a co-founder I feel is heavily influenced by how complex the software is that you're going to be building or that you're working on. And the more complicated it is, I feel like the more you are likely to probably need a co-founder because you need somebody who has a a large stake in the business, who owns that and knows that they're responsible for it and is going to do whatever the right decision is, kind of regardless of the cost, but also keeping in mind all of the other business things that are going on. Because if you hire somebody to do the technical stuff, they are probably not going to be aware of like this marketing efforts going on, that thing's going over on sales. They may be involved in some of the support stuff because they're going to have to fix those issues, but their concern is not marketing. Their concern is not sales side of things. Their concern is building the tech stack. And because of the lack of, I'll say visibility that they would have, or their perceived lack of importance of that stuff to their job, I just don't think that they're going to do as well if they're not, you know, like an equity slash co-founder type of person.
1: Yeah, I would agree. And I mean, is someone a co-founder? Co-founder is just a title. You know, you can give someone a co-founder title retroactively. If someone has 5% of the company, are they a co-founder? You know, I, I don't know. Some people might have that title. Other folks might say, well, no, they're they're the CTO, you know, or they're technical employee number one or whatever, software developer number one. So, you know, we are throwing around this term and, you know, I haven't, I haven't really defined it, but I don't know that, that we necessarily need to, to dive into that. I think the thing to think about is, You know, the reason that I haven't funded any companies without a technical co-founder, you were talking about the complexity versus not complexity of an app. I think these days, I want to fund companies that are going to be seven-figure or eight-figure businesses, right? They're going to be in the millions or above $10 million in annual revenue. And I think today to build a SaaS that does that, you are going to have complexity. I I don't know of a space where you can go back to the, the base camp days and build you know, a project management system that isn't that complicated or that, I'm not saying Basecamp's not complicated today, but realistically when they built it, it was, it was a lot of, it's just a lot of crud, right? Create, read, update, delete. And that's what Rails is really good at. And that's what they, you know, that's why DHH built Rails right out of, pulled it out of Basecamp. Those days are mostly over. I don't want to say entirely over, but the complexity of getting something to seven or eight figures these days, I believe almost without, without exception will require Software that's more complicated than we want it to be. How about that, right? It's like Drip was more, more work and more complicated than I wanted it to be. And same with Derek. And Bluetick is more complicated than you thought it would be and want it to be. And that's just what becomes because you, people want features and you look at the feature and you're like, oh my gosh, it's going to be hard to build, but that's going to be my differentiator or that's going to get this client to sign up.
0: Yeah, I think a a close second behind that is the type of person that you are and whether or not you do well, like under pressure and how how comfortable you are making decisions without additional input. I, I do agree with you in almost every case, like two heads are better than one. It almost doesn't matter what the situation is. But at the same time, like somebody is going to have to ultimately make the decision and it's more comfortable to have somebody uh, to make a decision when you have somebody else there who's on even footing with you and they agree with the decision versus I think this is the right decision, but I'm not sure, but I don't have anyone to talk to about it or anyone who can say, yes, we should go in this direction. So I'm going to make it, but I'm going to be more stressed out because of that. So just by virtue of having somebody else to be able to act as that sounding board who is involved in the business, I mean, yes, a mastermind group can help and other Founders of other companies that you know, they can certainly help out and give advice, but ultimately, if you're the only person in the business making those decisions, everything falls on your shoulders and that's a lot more stressful. And just having that co-founder to share the stress and the responsibility of those decisions, good or bad, is going to be helpful.
1: Well, I feel like that was a pretty good discussion. I hope uh, you as a listener enjoyed our conversation. If you have a question for us, call our voicemail number at 888-801-9690 or email us at questions at com. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for Startups and visit com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.